This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later today, we'll speak with D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation. He says it's time to disarm the police. Also, Black Lives Matter protests are everywhere, even in the most unlikely places. Zoe Carpenter will report. But first, defund the police and reimagine public safety. It's a big job, especially in L.A., where we record our show. The city has more than 10,000 cops and spends more than half of its discretionary budget on the police. And it's not just the LAPD. There's also the L.A. County sheriffs, the police in the public schools, the separate police forces for the MTAs, trains and stations, the police at UCLA, and the police in a dozen independent cities like Beverly Hills and Santa Monica. For comment, we turn to Kelly Little Hernandez. She teaches at UCLA, where she holds an endowed chair in history. She's also professor of African-American studies and urban planning and director of UCLA Center for African-American Studies. She wrote the award-winning book, City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. And she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant last year. Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with the LAPD. Costs taxpayers almost $2 billion a year. The mayor and the city council in L.A. are working now, they tell us, on cutting the police budget by something like $150 million. But the issue is a lot bigger than the budget. Black Lives Matter and the People's Budget Coalition are asking if we were going to design a public safety system from scratch, what would our priorities be? Thousands of people have participated in these discussions, 50 organizations. Where do we stand this week? We're moving so fast in this movement. I hesitate to give you an answer for this hour that will change by the next hour, right? Okay. So let me, let me take a step back and provide a, a little bit more framing for sure. where we're at. 
Um, there's certainly the effort led by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and the People's Budget, which was initiated prior to the uprising for Black life that we're seeing now. And that effort, um, the People's Budget has now gained steam and has brought Black Lives Matter representatives to city council to advocate on the behalf of the budget that they propose, which is not just a reduction in police spending, but also diverting those funds over to libraries and parks and schools and all of the services, housing in particular, all of the services and programs we know to disproportionately improve the conditions of Black life. In addition to this initiative at the city level, I do want to lift up the fact that at the county level, Los Angeles has been engaging in what's called the alternatives to incarceration process for over one year. And in March of 2020, prior to the stay-at-home orders and, and everything that came down, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors accepted and approved unanimously the Alternatives to Incarceration Plan. I bring this up because that plan lays out um, a series of steps, actionable steps that can be taken to significantly shrink, if not abolish, our need for policing by investing heavily in mental health care, health care services, housing, and um, stripping away all of the, the social services that our, our law enforcement have been called to do over the last few decades. So we're fortunate here in Los Angeles that we've got multiple plans available, blueprints in place, and we're ready to go. We just need our local administrators and representatives to have the courage to fund those plans. Well, to get back to the LAPD for a minute, the top brass at the LAPD have been talking about reform ever since the department was forced to enter a federal consent decree in 2001. That lasted for 12 years of federal court supervision. The decree required the police not commit perjury and not fake evidence. Seems like a good idea. And you know, investigate and punish excessive use of force. The consent decree came to an end in 2013. What has happened to the LAPD official reform efforts? I think when we talk about police reform, I think about it from the perspective of my training as a historian. So yes, we can talk about what's happened since 2001 and 2003, but let's look at the longer direct. So my response to a question like that generally is that we have tried police reform multiple times and in multiple ways across the course of U.S. history. At each turn, reform has failed, whether it's the Wickersham Commission of the 1930s, the Kerner Commission of the 1960s, the recent commissions and reforms after the Rampart scandal here in Los Angeles, the adoption of implicit bias training, the adoption of big data policing, which was supposed to wash policing of an individual police officer's biases. None of it has worked. What has been persistently exposed is that Black folks in particular, but certainly Indigenous folks, poor folks, Latinx folks, have been consistently disproportionately harmed by policing in the United States. So the question before us now is not how to reform this system. We've tried that and it hasn't worked. The question is how do we reimagine, radically reimagine our public safety systems that dramatically shrinks our dependence upon an armed police force and dramatically increases our dependence upon the, again, 
the practices that we know to improve the conditions of life, education, housing, healthcare, the list goes on and is quite well known. So my, my position on police reform is that we've been there, we've done that multiple times, it has not worked, we need to push beyond that position now. And let's talk about cops in the schools in LA. In LA, there's an armed police officer in every high school. I understand there's a total of 470 uniformed and civilian people in the school police. Student activists have been demanding for years that the school board get the cops out of the schools. And the good news is the teachers union in LA recently called for the elimination of the $70 million school police budget and using the money to hire more counselors and building restorative justice programs. Uh, The school police force says they've already instituted reforms. My favorite example is in 2016, they returned military-grade weaponry it had received from the federal government, including grenade launchers. Well, that seems like a good idea. Send those back. So if we want to talk about the Los Angeles school police, uh, there's a couple of um, data points I'd like to add to this conversation. We know that back in 2013, the Los Angeles Unified School District adopted a school climate bill of rights. And that bill of rights, I think was a good faith effort to improve school culture and decrease dependence upon um, disciplinary approaches, punitive approaches. However, my research team at UCLA, the Million Dollar Hoods research team, which collects up arrest data and jail data from across the state of California. Then we work with communities to calculate how much is being spent to incarcerate ourselves, our family members, our neighbors, um, and to identify trends in policing. Well, we worked with community to, to acquire the Los Angeles School Police data, and we published a report back in October of 2018 on the Los Angeles School Police Department. And in that report, we looked at LA school police practices between 2014 and 2017. So this is after the adoption of the Bill of Rights. And we found a couple of practices that were alarming, that one in four contacts by the school police were of a black student, although black students make up less than 9%, 8% of the school population. Nearly one in three of all arrests was of a black child. Um, One in four arrests was of a child who was of middle school or elementary age. The data becomes more racially disparate the younger the child gets. Um, So blacker, the the data gets blacker as the child gets younger. In our data set, the youngest child to be arrested was a nine-year-old black boy who was arrested by the LA school police. And among Mm -hmm. girls, black girls are the most disproportionately arrested. So this is all data that we collected and we crunched. It comes from a time period after a truly good faith effort to reform the Los Angeles school police. The disparities remain, the disparities are persistent. Um, So the work that folks are doing now to seriously challenge how much we're spending on school police and to divert those funds over to um, school counselors, restorative, justice practices by staff members trained in the, in the field. Um, the, Los Ange- the UCLA Blackmail Institute earlier this month released a new report that is based upon um, interviews with students in LA Unified. And those students identified what they say that they need. And what they said that they need is 
mediation training mm -hmm. and support. They need academic counseling. They need general counseling. So the students themselves are telling us what they need to feel safe and to be safe at school. And so there's a movement afoot here in Los Angeles as there is up and down the state of California and across the country, um, led by students and led by parents to sure, truly invest in the practices that we know to keep our young people safe when they're at school. And we should talk about the sheriffs. The parts of L.A. County that don't have their own police departments are policed by the sheriffs who also run the jails. Los Angeles incarcerates more people than any other city in the United States. That's the subject of your book, City of Inmates. The jails are run by the sheriffs. The jails are horrible right now because of COVID-19, in addition to everything else. The last report I saw was a couple of weeks ago, almost 2,600 jail inmates had tested positive for COVID-19, along with 340 guards and civilian employees. The ACLU and community groups have been suing the jails for decades, and right now the biggest immediate problem is the L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva refuses to follow the law in releasing records about misconduct and excessive use of force. We know he's reinstated deputies who are who were fired for dishonesty or using unreasonable force. What are we going to do about the jails and the sheriff in L.A.? You know, there's so many different ways to come at that question. First is to acknowledge the extraordinary community organizing that has been happening in Los Angeles for decades, but certainly over the last decade. And right now, um, several organizations are, are leading this charge and coalitions, the Justice LA coalitions, one I'll lift up right now, that prepared us for this moment. There's an opportunity in this moment in terms of reducing the size of our jailed population here in Los Angeles, that the, the virus, the global pandemic in which we're in has forced the hand of the sheriff and others to um, significantly reduce the size of the jail population by about a third um, here in LA. The struggle ahead of us is going to be retaining and deepening those commitments to, for example, bail reform, right, and ending the bail system so that folks can go home um, without fee and without charge so long as they have not been charged with one of the categorical offenses that you are banned from getting, from getting bail. The issue that I want to raise here is that, yes, we've got a problem there problematic sheriff here in Los Angeles, but this sheriff is not the problem, right? So I don't want to over-focus on this moment and this sheriff. The problem is much deeper, much more historical, much more structural. And so we got to take advantage of this moment and address the issues with this particular person in power um, while keeping our sights on the deeper structural issues at hand. And we have this chance to mobilize and harness a trend of the reduction of the jail population. So I think for me, that's the focus right now, not, not the sheriff. And there's also a separate police force at UCLA. You're a UCLA professor. How are things going with the efforts to deal with the UCLA police department? 
I'm glad that you asked about that. Yes, I'm a professor at UCLA. I'm also a member of a faculty collective called the Divest Invest Faculty Collective, which has insisted upon a divestment commitment and plan from UCLA. Um, that is to divest from the UCLA PD and also to sever ties with local law enforcement and federal law enforcement um, to be able to reimagine public safety in our community, our Bruin community. Today, on Tuesday, June 30th, <laughs> we received a communication from um, Upper Administration, which um, announced that the university will be launching a task force for public safety and is committed to um, reforming police practice. For many of us in the collective, in fact, I would say probably almost all of us in the collective, that is an insufficient response that the world has told us the uprising has confirmed that policing is harmful to black people and to marginalized communities writ large. And this is a moment for us to radically reimagine what is possible. And we would like to see the university and institution of higher education take lead at this moment and a commitment to establishing a task force um, and to continuing the practices of reform, again, implicit bias training, no more chokeholds, all that kind of stuff, is not a strong enough commitment, is not a bold enough move in this moment. So the, the movement at UCLA now is to continue to push for the full commitment to divestment from policing and investment in the practices that we know will keep us safer. Kelly Little Hernandez teaches history at UCLA. She wrote the award-winning book, City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles, 1771 to 1965. And she's featured in the new article at thenation.com, How to Make Defunding the Police a Reality. Kelly, thanks for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's time to disarm the police. That's what D.D. Guttenplan says. He's editor of The Nation. We reached him today in London. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be back, John. So you open your piece for The Nation with a list of some of the most notorious cases of Black people being killed by cops with guns. Remind us about those. Well, I, I talk about the harrowing video of Rayshard Brooks being shot in the back by the Atlanta police. But, you know, then there's Breonna Taylor, who was shot as she slept in her own bed in Louisville. And in Minnesota, uh, Philando Castile. And then North Charleston, Walter Scott. And I was in Cleveland the week that Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy, was shot in the park. The Nation editorial is 650 words. In the longer version of this, I had Michael Stewart, Eleanor Bumpers, names I remembered from New York, this is something that has been going on for generations. Well, Philando Castile is especially significant to me. We're approaching the fourth anniversary of his murder. He was shot on July 6th, 2016. Philando Castile and I went to the same high school, St. Paul Central. 
Just to remind our listeners, he was 37 when he was killed. He had worked for years as a food services supervisor at one of the St. Paul Public Schools. We're told he was very popular among the students. He knew their names. He knew their food allergies. The cop who stopped Philando Castile and his girlfriend and then killed him was tried for manslaughter and found not guilty. You say that for much of American history, the police did not carry guns. When when did they start? I assumed that the police always had guns. Uh, but when you look into it, the night watchmen who were what they had for police in the original North American colonies uh, were selected from the community uh, and they did not carry any weapons. And they went around and said, you know, 12 o'clock and all is well or so forth. Benjamin Franklin's police force that he instituted in Philadelphia were not armed. The Boston police were not armed. In very few of the northern colonies were, uh, in, in none of the northern colonies were the police armed with anything more than a short club. It's important to note that the Charleston slave patrols were always armed uh, and that that's the origin of most southern police forces. They, have, they were slave patrols who were instituted to prevent slave uprisings and to capture and return escaped slaves and to maintain racial subjugation in the South. And essentially, after the Civil War, these forces became the nuclei of the police force in Southern states. So arming the police has always been associated in America with racial subjugation. The other police force who have always been armed are the Texas Rangers, who of course were charged with not only, you know, enforcing the theft of land from Mexico, but also prosecuting uh, genocidal wars against Native Americans. When and why were police, municipal police forces given guns? It was only after the Civil War as police departments in the North increasingly took on the role of strike breakers, because that was one of the, one of the things, you know, Karl Marx called the eight hour law passed by the state of Illinois, the first fruit of the Northern victory of the civil war. After the civil war, there was an incredible upsurge of organizing among labor. Uh, and essentially police forces were enlisted by capital to put down these uprisings. And at that point, they began needing to carry weapons and carrying weapons. Although, again, the New York City police were not issued with weapons until a reform mayor, William Strong, in the 1890s and his reform anti-corruption police commissioner, Theodore Roosevelt, handed out pistols to the NYPD. So you say it's time to disarm the police, but uh, is there any place in the world today where the regular police are not armed? Oh, come on, John. We both know that here in London, the Metropolitan Police famously do not carry guns. Look, I, I, there's a point I want to make, which is that uh, disarming the police and defunding the police are not the same demand, but they are related. Uh, and it seems to me they work in tandem. You know, you have these police forces that show up for demonstrations clad head to toe in body armor uh, and with, you know, mace, tear gas, pepper spray, guns, you know, sometimes machine guns, sometimes tanks. They don't want for a nickel, uh, whereas doctors and nurses in municipal hospitals have sometimes had to beg for PPE. So 
you know, that's one point is that the money spent on overarming our police could clearly be better spent elsewhere. Another point is that when you see, as we now increasingly do, videos of the way police behave with their guns, it's clear that these people have no business carrying guns and they should be taken away from them. But the London model is relevant because, first of all, London is a big cosmopolitan city, uh, very diverse. Secondly, London in the 70s and 80s had a much bigger terrorism problem than anywhere in the United States, and yet they never felt the need to arm their police. And, uh, and third, even in recent years with the, you know, the rise of other kinds of, of terrorism, after the 7-7 the bombings, for example, here on the, on the underground, they still didn't arm the police because the model is policing by consent. And, and the point of suggesting that we disarm American police is not to say that America and Britain are socially the same. It's to say that policing by consent involves a different mindset on the part of the police. And that if American police went on the job with that mindset, instead of I'm packing heat, I don't need to listen to you, there would be a, a, a de-escalation and a particularly a saving of black lives. Well, your piece at The Nation got about two dozen comments. Uh, let me ask you about some of them. The most common objection was since criminals have guns in America, the police have to have guns. I'm just guessing here, but I imagine you are aware of the fact that criminals in America have guns. Well, let's put it this way. I was robbed at gunpoint in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn in the 1980s. Okay. So, so I'm not only theoretically aware, you know, they... They say that a, a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Well, I'm, I'm a radical who's been mugged, and I'm still a radical. Okay. Uh, yes, of course, I'm aware that Americans have guns. In fact, I made a, a radio program for the BBC five years ago called Guns, an American Love Affair, which is exactly about Americans and guns. But here's the point. Guns are not equally distributed, just like money in the United States and other social <laughs> goods. Guns are not equally spread. So... You know, even if you argue that, for example, I don't know, in Texas, where everybody and their mother has a gun and you're allowed to, to open carry anywhere you want, the police might feel at a disadvantage not having a gun. I think that's not a spurious argument. That's a serious argument. On the other hand, in New York City or Boston, where carrying a gun is illegal and where nobody's supposed to have the gu a gun, only the police and criminals have guns. And if the police didn't have guns as a matter of course. First of all, 98% of the crime they deal with doesn't require a gun. Secondly, if you're someone calling because your neighbor upstairs is screaming because he's, I don't know, going crazy from lockdown, and the police show up and they don't have guns, then you don't have to worry about getting your neighbor killed, particularly if your neighbor is black or Hispanic. The point is you could start with big cities where they already don't have guns, New York, Washington, Boston. And, you know, if the sky fell down, I suppose you could give them their guns back. On the other hand, if you had what happens in London, which is instead of having one cop with a gun show up at any, you know, police call, you get three cops who don't have guns <laughs> showing up, then uh, you'll find out that you don't need them. In London, if there's, a sh if there's an armed incident... The Metropolitan Police have a SWAT squad or the equivalent, an armed response team who do have guns. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have that. 
But that's, you know, a very small fraction of, particularly in the case of the NYPD or the Chicago Police Department or the Boston Police Department, a very large police force. And another set of comments on your piece uh, argued that the solution is not to disarm the police, but to retrain them and to eliminate the so-called bad apples. Well, you know, first of all, (laughs) the point about bad apples is that they do spoil the barrel. So, uh, you know, eliminating them might be good, but it may be too late for some of that. Retraining, of course, yes, there should be much more emphasis on de-escalation. But, you know, how seriously do you get people to, to take that? I, that's my, my, my point is that the whole mentality is different. And, you know, look, you and I are old enough to remember the Tom Robinson band's great song, Glad to be Gay, which begins, the British police are the best in the world. He's being satirical, and he's absolutely right. Not having a gun doesn't keep you from beating people up or being brutal. I've been kettled by the London Metropolitan Police, and I can tell you it's no fun. What does kettled mean? Kettled means you're part of a demonstration and you're surrounded by a phalanx of police who won't let you leave and contain you in smaller and smaller areas for hours. And, I, and I've been on the streets in London and, and been charged at by police horses, and that's no fun either. So I'm not saying that London Metropolitan Police are perfect or that they should be the model. I'm just saying that policing is possible in a big city with a terrorist threat without guns. Concluding thoughts here. Have you gotten other responses to this piece other than the ones I've cited from the comments section? Well, you know, a lot of Americans seem to (laughs) like to point out that there are more guns in America than there are people. And, you know, do I think that's a problem? Yes. (laughs) Would I like to see fewer guns (laughs) around? Yes. On the other hand, you know, I, look, I live part of the year in Vermont, and uh, Vermont has very lax gun laws, and on the other hand, very low crime and very low murder rates. So I, I, I think that it, there are way too many guns. Nobody really needs handguns. Nobody really needs AK-47s or whatever the equivalents are. But, you know, in a state where there are a lot of hunters, you're going to have a lot of guns, and I'm fine with that. What I don't, What I think is that you don't want to call the cops because you're locked out of your house and then find out that that because you happen to be black, they decided they needed to shoot you rather than help you get back in. D.D. Guttenplan, you can read his article, Disarm the Police at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. Black Lives Matter protests are everywhere in places you couldn't have imagined. Zoe Carpenter has that report. She's a contributing writer for The Nation, and she received the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism in 2018. Her writing has also appeared in Rolling Stone and other publications. We reached her today in Portland. Zoe, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start in Laramie, Wyoming, 32,000 people. I know it's a university town. That means it has a Black Student Alliance. But The rest of the town has got to be almost all white. What did you find out about protests in Laramie? Well, you're right. Laramie is about 90% white. And like many other small cities and towns across the United States, Laramie had one of these um, surprising and quite large Black Lives Matter protests. And not just one day, but they actually were demonstrating for at least 10 days in a row 
Um, and I, I spoke with one of the leaders of that um, effort, a, a woman named Timberly Vogel, and she was, has been involved in campus activism for a long time. And um, one of the things she said was that this was the first time in her experience living in Laramie where something transcended the, the boundaries of the campus and got um, involved with the whole town. And, and that it really seemed like all of the regular demographic barriers um, to participation really broke down in this particular time. And how about Florence, Alabama? Uh, I know it's it's in northern Alabama on the Tennessee River. I know it as the place where the where you can find the legendary Muscle Shoals Music Studio, revered by people who love uh, music from the late '60s and '70s. The Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. This is where the Staple Singers recorded "I'll Take You There." The Rolling Stones went to Muscle Shoals to record "Brown Sugar." Paul Simon recorded Loves Me Like a Rock. What's been happening in Florence, Alabama? Well, what I was interested in in Florence is that it's an example of a place where the uprising after the killing of George Floyd has re-injected new energy into sort of pre-existing civil rights struggles or other types of campaigns against uh, police reform or, in the case of Florence, historical memory. Um, so there's a group called Project Say Something that's been working to try to remove or at the very least contextualize a Confederate monument that's there in front of the county court house. Um, and that's been a struggle and, and it's been difficult to get traction within the community for that. And then now, um, amidst this wave of protest, people are connecting the police brutality in Minneapolis to um, this historical legacy of the Confederacy and, and of um, racism and segregation. And so it's, um, I think as we look at these protests that are happening around the country, seeing that they're not only just expressions of solidarity, um, but they're also you know, connecting the sort of big overarching struggle for racial justice with these very local ongoing battles. So there were marches in Florence protesting the Confederate statue. What's happened there with the statue? Well, so so the marches, just to clarify, um, they were they were broader. They were um, protesting the death of George Floyd and other people who'd been killed by police, um, and, and the statue aspect of it was kind of folded in with this larger uh, these larger demonstrations about racial injustice and police brutality. One of the things that happened was that there was a public meeting of the county commissioners um, that was happening around these demonstrations. And they actually had to move to a larger room because there were so many people who wanted to speak out against the monument and to advocate for moving it. So the county commissioners um, are the ones that have the power and the jurisdiction. And there's a pretty strong campaign of advocacy to get them to move it. It's, it's not clear yet whether they'll do that. Um, in, a, in effect, they're hiding behind a state law that protects monuments. But the organizers of the, of the campaign to move the, the monument have been raising funds to pay any fines they're related. And um, it's a problem that the, the commission could solve if it chose to. I also want to ask you about Klamath Falls Oregon. This is the town for Crater Lake National Park, which is a wonderful place. But, you know, this part of Oregon, there's a lot of, lot of white men with guns. What's been happening in Klamath Falls? Well, Klamath Falls is really interesting. 
as you said, it's a lot of white men with guns and, and they, they showed up um, in part because of rumors which have been sweeping suburban communities as well as rural communities about, you know, quote unquote, Antifa showing up. Um, and it's, it's interesting if you look at the, the way that these rumors are being spread, it's as if Antifa with a capital A is some sort of organized terrorist group that's coming to these towns. And of course, you know, listeners to this podcast will probably know that it just means anti-fascist and any of us can be anti-fascist. But so these rumors have been sweeping small towns about busloads of anti-fascist activists coming to riot and wreak havoc upon these uh, unsuspecting rural places. And of course, those are fictitious, but the response has been that militia members and other other people with guns in some cases, um, in other cases, sometimes with Confederate flags, are showing up to quote unquote defend their small towns. And there's a really interesting dissonance between what they expect um, and, and what they see, which is in most cases, large peaceful demonstrations composed of multi-generations of people, um, multi-racial groups, uh, kids, dogs, you know, grandparents, teenagers, just really diverse protests here. So in Klamath Falls, what happened was the small group of protesters essentially had to walk down the street in between rows of men, many of them with guns. Um, and one of the, the people that I spoke with said that he felt very threatened um, as you know, a black man living in this incredibly white town uh, with all of these men with guns standing around. But you know, he carried on with the march. And uh, when they got to their destination, there was a huge crowd waiting there of, of Black Lives Matter demonstrators. And it was a really, he said, uh, ultimately a very positive experience to feel like there were more people than he perhaps expected who were willing to stand up for racial justice and who cared about the issue in this community. And since then, have the uh, white men with guns continued to uh, try to intimidate Black Lives Matter protesters? You know, according to the participant that I spoke with, he said that they've gone away and that um, his interpretation was that they had been made to look sort of silly. You know, they showed up expecting a war. And of course, what they saw were just regular citizens there to, you know, exercise their um, right to, to protest. So they've largely gone away and that public space has been maintained by the Black Lives Matter protesters. And I think that's one of the really important aspects of this is, especially in um, rural areas that have a conservative reputation, is just kind of changing what is normative there and uh, what people feel comfortable saying and doing in public and, and reclaiming the public space. And then you wrote about a place I never heard of, Vidor, Texas. 11,000 people I learned it's a former Ku Klux Klan haven. Texas Monthly described it as the state's most hate-filled town in the 1990s. How are things going for Black Lives Matter in Vidor, Texas? Well, yeah, this is another place where we are seeing a, at least a temporary reclamation of space that has long been defined by segregation and brutal racism. You know, as you said, Vidor, Texas has a reputation for being an extremely racist place in terms of policies, things like housing segregation, but also just in terms of interpersonal relationships. And so when a young woman started trying to organize a uh, racial justice uh, demonstration there, some people in the area thought it was a trick. And, you know, someone tweeted uh, something to the effect of black people know not to even stop for gas there. Mm. Why would we show up to a protest? But it actually wasn't a trick. It, it was a real demonstration. And I believe somewhere between 100 and 200 people showed up and 
you know, that doesn't mean that problems in a place like VIDAR are solved. I think we should be clear about the, the sort of limits of just showing up to a protest or two, but it definitely was, a, a, again, a change of what people thought of as, as normative and accepted um, in that area. You end your report for The Nation with a wonderful quote from a 78-year-old woman interviewed uh, at a rally in a place called Anna, Illinois. Tell us about that. So this is Mildred Henderson, who is a 78-year-old woman and a veteran activist. So she's been involved in, in other civil rights struggles throughout her life. And she said, I've never seen so many white people give a darn about Black people. And we have some polling results about popular support for Black Lives Matter and, and these issues. So tell us what we know about that now. For example, a poll released in the first week of June shows that 76% of Americans um, and 71% of white people uh, describe racial discrimination in the United States now as a big problem. And that's up 25 points from 2015. Zoe Carpenter, she wrote for The Nation about how Black Lives Matter protests are everywhere. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.